business building lessons might be similar for every industry but what if we add to them the layer of building a business when you are a young brown immigrant what if we add the layer of building a business in yet a new space of digital media what if i tell you that in spite of all these ads a business owner goes on to successfully raise funding welcome everyone to this wonderful episode of aces says where i am in conversation with snigda sood who as a matter of fact has done all of the above snigda is the founder and ceo of the juggernaut the juggernaut is a digital media publication headquartered in the usa that documents the unstoppable rise of south asians and south asia snigda is a young trailblazer with a passion to tell south asian stories to the entire world Let's get some business growth advice from Snigda but before that a gentle reminder for you to leave us a five star rating and review and follow this podcast when you take out one minute to just do both of those things this podcast reaches to many more maven entrepreneurs just like yourself so now without further ado let's bring Snigda onto the mic Fall in love with selling as you acquire the right mindset, selling style and sales process that helps you take your business solution to more prospects, potential clients and the world at large. If you are a women entrepreneur who is looking to get more sales, scale and sustainability in your business, you have reached the right place. I'm Roshni Baronia, your host for the show Ace the Sales, which is all about helping you bring your authentic and influential self to each sales conversation. Hey Snigda, welcome to the show. Roshni, thanks so much for having me. So Snigda, I will ask uh, one of uh, the most difficult questions from you, a difficult googly question from you in fact. So you wear multiple hats like most women do, but the two that stand out are that you are a woman in business and a woman in journalism. So which one gets a little more love than the other and how do you navigate through the overlap of both in everyday life? That's such a great question. I think to answer it, I'm going to take a little bit of a roundabout answer. And I think growing up, I always had both the left brain and the right brain thing going on. So when I was a kid, like I loved math, but I also would spend all my time. I was an immigrant, so I moved from India to the US when I was 3. I would spend all my time at the library. So I would just take out the maximum books, 25 and just come home and read them back to back to back. And so I think, you know, growing up, writing and numbers were like breathing to me. So I remember I was like, you know, in third grade and I actually like computers were just starting to come up. I know like Gen Z is like what are you what are you guys talking about? But you know, computers started to be in your home, not just the office. And I remember borrowing my cousin's computer so I could write like a book of poetry in third grade and then I published it by printing it and I made all my relatives read it. So like I would do silly things like that. And so I would say in today's world um in terms of that world of business like I spent several years as a consultant at McKinsey and then I also went to business school and worked at several different corporate settings and I would say that that business side has never left me and has been such a great foundation to build the business on because I know multiple founders and I love all my founder friends but there are some concepts that if you don't really grasp it's hard to understand where you're going 
And one of the things is valuation, right? Like where does a business create value? You create value by creating cash flow. How do you create cash flow? You know, like things like that. I think it's not very intuitive for some people. So in terms of what gets a lot of love, I would say, you know, intrinsically, I would say that I'm a much more trained business person professionally. But I think like my heart and my brain and my like growing up, I was definitely much more of a journalist. And I think on the outside world, maybe I would say I'm misunderstood on both, I would say, because I don't think most people associate to your point, um, because technically I've never professionally been a journalist. I wrote in high school for my paper. I ran my high school paper and I also wrote for my college paper and I'm trained in that regard. I've been trained by some of the best, but professionally, I'm not, I've never technically been a journalist until the juggernaut. And I think on the business side, I do think many uh, people have biases against women in business. So when you think about all of those things, I would say both are incredibly misunderstood, which I'm fine with. I'm just there to, you know, um, shatter expectations. Wow. Wow. So you are out there to break those stereotypes. Exactly. Exactly. You know, when people are like, oh, have you, do you have a business model for your business? I'm like, what are you t- talking about? Like I did this even before I started my business. Like, you know, it's, 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 it's like, like I said, I think some of those things are like breathing for people when you're, when you're so used to doing it. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, you just shared that, uh, yeah, you as a kid used to read a lot, you re- uh, wrote a lot. And uh, probably since you were such an avid reader yourself, that's when you observed that there was little or no coverage of Indian and South Asian descent in the publications that were available in America at that point of time. So clearly you see a need there. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that journey of uh, identifying the gap then starting a media company and about convincing American investors to put their money in a company which is talking about South Asians. So how did that happen? Great question. And I think it hopefully ties and is valuable to a sales audience and in terms of answering that. I think the I think you hit the nail on the head. I did observe a lot of that growing up, that dissonance where I'd go home and my parents love movies. Like they grew up loving movies. So I, I still remember every weekend we'd play one Bollywood movie. We pick one Bollywood movie or one Indian movie. It didn't have to be Bollywood. We also watched multiple other languages and then be one Hollywood movie. That's how I grew up. And it was always like a multicultural home in that way. But then you, you know, you'd go to school in the weekdays and then that kind of multicultural bubble would burst and your friends would be like, what are you talking about? Right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, and so I remember reading, I always tell the story. I remember reading the Iliad in eighth grade, or it was a little bit earlier. And I was like, wow, the Iliad is very, 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 very similar to like the Mahabharata. There are all these gods. They're so angry. They're taking sides. Like, isn't this similar? And people were like, what are you talking about? You know, and I think that that dissonance was always there. And similarly, you know, I used to do the spelling bee when I was a young kid, and there was never a mention of South Asians dominating the spelling bee yet. But I could see it happening because, you know, we had that awareness in our community that those networks were being built and that those, you know, the spelling bees were being had in small communities. And so I would say that that was really important to me as you were growing up more, because when you're a young kid, you have your home, but as you grow older, you have to create those networks of knowledge and networks of community yourself. So how do you do it? So I would just read a lot. I would, you know, I moved to India and lived in Bombay for a year as an adult without my parents, which was really fun um, in the sense that like discovering your parents' country in your own country on your own terms. And then when I came to pitch it, it all started with what I would call an MVP, which is I started with a free weekly newsletter. And I was like, let me just send this to my friends. I forced them to sign up. 
And I think the real magic happens when your non-friends sign up, when people you don't know sign up. And then you're like, who are these people? And it came to a point where I was like, I really want to test this out. And so I quit my job. I had some savings. I went to Y Combinator. I pitched it. And here's one thing I will say. Y Combinator gets a lot of controversy, you know, attracts a lot of controversy all the time on Twitter. I get it. But one thing I will say is that it's very pure in its main mission, which is make something people want. So I showed up, going back to sales, I showed up to my YC interview with pages of data for my MailChimp uh, tests, where I was like, hey, this is my, these are my open rates. These are my unique open rates. These are the links they're clicking. This is what they're saying. And it, it's kind of irrefutable, right? Like you can't really mess with data. It's like, wait, you have real customers and they are actually consuming and reading and doing this. And going back to sales, I think one of the things that's irrefutable often, you know, going with the analogy can be like the demo or the data point, that magic moment when people realize that there's something there. And that's all it took for them to invest. When it came to post-demo day, that was actually far harder because, you know, I think because YC is so clear in its mission and because it has this strategy, this fun strategy of investing in many, many companies, I think when you get past demo day, you know, people are investing larger checks. And so they need to see, have even more conviction. And I will say that my biggest supporters have actually not even been my earliest supporters from the South Asian community. They were the ones who were the most skeptical because sometimes, if you, you know, in sales, if you think you know too much about something, you are very skeptical. So like, let's say you are the, I don't know, uh, I'm going to make this up, procurement expert at your company. And some entrepreneur comes in, I have a new procurement product. It's so easy. You're going to be so hard on that person because you're like, I'm the expert. How does this founder know anything? And I think that when I was pitching a lot of South Asian VCs, they're like, well, things have come and gone. There have been all these other old papers. Like, why will this be any different? And I don't think they could really imagine a different world. And most of my earliest investors came from other communities that had seen success. So um, like I have several, my biggest investors by value are actually black general partners because they've seen success from, you know, Oprah Winfrey's company or, um, you know, black entertainment television. And they're like, wait, this makes so much sense in our community. Why isn't there something like that for your community? And I think that kind of allyship and that kind of um, imagination is really, really important. So I would say when it comes to sales, my takeaways were find people who have found success, even if it's not exactly your community. And second, it might be okay if they're not experts in your field because they might be the most hard on you because it's hard for them to envision a different world. And you're exactly trying to sell a different world. That's so true. That's so well said that, uh, yes, sometimes though your customer is actually uh, the expert themselves and then they will make really hard for you to sell them your product or the solution. But uh, that's a great uh, uh, insight that you also shared that just show up because uh, that's what sales is about irrespective of whether you will get a yes or a no, you have to show up. So kudos to you that without overthinking, you showed up at YC and got the funding. <laughs> but not just YC, there were many other uh, investors as well. Uh, so, uh, of course, while you were going out there and um, solving problem or so solving a market need, essentially, I'm sure in the initial days, your business internally as well was facing some challenges or some initial hiccups. So talk to us a little bit about how things were different for you, from, for you being a McKinsey alumni, then working um, 
into corporate and then having your own business. So how were things different from theory to practical? Yes. And I think a few things to say here is there is that element of theory to practical, but even in so many of these corporate settings, at the end of the day, you are accumulating skills, right? At the end of the day, a business is working with lots of great people and bringing up the best in everyone, you know, having teamwork and collaboration. And most people have that experience in spades. I think what's interesting about um, my personal experience and also seeing how the team experienced it is giving yourself the grace when you're building something new for the first six months to a year that things will go wrong. And, you know, I didn't have, I think what I came in with was probably, you know, when you come from experiences like the McKinsey's of the world, you expect things to be working at 110%. And I think that um, coming into your own business and having that expectation of yourself is good, but it also is really hard because you aren't giving yourself that time you need to learn. And I remember my biggest investor at the day was um, Charles Hudson from Precursor Ventures. In our first six months, we were not growing. It was very slow. It was snail-like. We hadn't achieved exact product market fit. And I was like, Charles, like, am I messing this up? Am I doing something wrong? And he was the one, he's like, Siga, because you know he's invested in a bunch of, he's a seed investor. He's invested in a bunch of early stage founders. He's like, you're going to figure it out. And then in six months, you're going to look back and you're like, yep, I learned a lot here. And I was like, how do you have so much confidence? Like, you know what I mean? Like he had so much confidence that I would figure it out. He's like, well, I've seen it happen a lot. And I was like, okay. And I think that, um, you know, having that confidence, you need at least one supporter. I was talking to another founder and she's like, you always need that one supporter who's going to believe in you, even though you can't see it yet. And so I will say our first six months, we were really bad. Here's why we were bad. We were building a direct to consumer company and going back to sales, a lot of YC culture, right? Many companies in YC historically have been B2B SaaS. So they're selling to other companies. So they have, they've eliminated that cold start problem, right? Which is that, you know, that Andrew Chen talks about, which is who do they sell to? They sell to other YC companies. So they emerge from YC already having this kind of red hot sales cycle or some form of like reinforcing virtuous cycle. We came out of YC. We didn't invest in any form of PR. We didn't invest in any form of marketing. We didn't invest in any of the traditional levers that consumer companies do. And we were like, where are the customers, right? We were, you know, we, we had a huge cold start problem. And so we had to go back to the beginning. So we did things like working with amazing writers so, and relying on writers to tell their audiences we existed. And we were really afraid of using paid marketing. But then we we're like, you know what? Let's test it. And we started testing things like Facebook ads, started testing things like, or, like really thinking about how do we nail social. Our Instagram before, and let me check, our Instagram now I think has like over 98,000 followers, which isn't that much in the large scheme of things. But our Instagram, when we started had like 500 people and our Instagram posts sucked. They were terrible. Like there was no reason for people to follow us. And so like, I think like going back to the beginning and thinking about what are our distribution channels, going back to sales, how are people actually going to find us through our writers, through social media? How can we use a mix of paid and organic opportunities? How do we make things exciting? We hosted a Bollywood trivia event. How do we think outside the box? And as YC says, do things that don't scale initially. And I think that will be my biggest takeaway, which is give yourself the patience. And um, if you don't have a way to find your customers, you will figure it out. If you are, you know, if you're persistent, you will. You need to just have faith and it's going to happen. But of course, you're going to probably work like really hard in the background as that happens. So that was my biggest learning in the first six to nine months. 
so important that we don't give ourselves the space, the learning space to experiment. Uh, initially, the first time entrepreneurs especially uh, do this mistake, they don't prepare themselves to get trained or learn from their mistakes, learn from here to what the market is saying here, what the customer is saying and be ready to pivot. That is something one uh, really needs to uh, do. And uh, also the fact that you said that uh, it was something where, where you are leveraging social media and Instagram as a distribution channel. So people just see social as social media as something which they necessarily want to do. But if you view it from the perspective of a business, it is actually a distribution channel and you can have not one, but more distribution channels if you approach it strategically. So that's awesome that you grew your Instagram from 500 to 98K plus. So that's awesome. So uh, tell us a little bit about what's happening in the juggernaut right now. What's new? What's coming up? When it comes to the juggernaut, we think a lot about it. I mean, this is a really terrible phrase, but I call it like, it's also, I guess, a sales phrase. So I think it's fine for your audience. Land and expand which is how do you make sure that the foundation is really good and then build on top? I think right now in 2022, we have a lot of ambitions. Um, we want a YouTube grant to go into video. So we launched video this year. I actually, we believe we launched it last year in the end of Q4, but everything's a blur. And then we have been recording, you know, also audio and we launched our podcast in January. Uh, it's called, you know, the Juggernaut Interviews. It's a seasonal podcast. Our first category is founders. Check it out. Uh, we get some really interesting insights also. And, you know, what I really love about this show is that I feel like there's a tendency in the startup world to go for listening to just famous people, right? When they, after they figured it out. And I think that's such a huge disservice because all those learnings have sort of been like hindsight biased. So you don't really get the raw, the rawness of what people actually went through. And so I, we have purposely picked people who are in the middle of building. Many of them are not completely famous yet. They will be, hopefully, maybe, and maybe it's okay if they're not, but we actually know exactly what they're building. Um, when I say famous, I mean, they're not necessarily like a household name. They're obviously very well known in exactly their sector, but it's more that it might not be that everybody in the U.S. knows them or everybody in the world knows them. And we're trying to change that because they have such expertise in their field. So in terms of that, what we're working on is let's expand it into other formats in terms of content. And the second thing we're trying to work on is let's work on other verticals. So we're really, really good at culture, culture writing and culture content. But how do we get better at business and tech writing? How do we get better at politics? And I think that's something that requires more sustained investment. And so we're working on that. So, and then the last piece that we're thinking about more is how do we engage more of the community, which is we did really successful like Q&As and um, Bollywood trivia nights pre-COVID. And we're like, well, you know, as COVID abates, hopefully, knock on wood, how can we bring some of those in-person events back? How do we make some of those in-person community moments happen? How do we launch some merch so that people are excited by, by those things? We're also going through, sorry, this is like a laundry list now. We're also going through a huge redesign. And we partnered with Pentagram, which is one of these biggest design firms in New York City, the former art director of the New York Times Magazine. And we got our own font, all created by South Asians. So how do we you know, even rethink design from a South Asian lens. And that was very, very important to us. So, you know, in terms of what's going on for us as a company, the way it would sum it up is expanding into new, new areas, both in terms of business lines, both in terms of content verticals, both in terms of formats, um, expanding and rethinking some of our branding now that we have some time to invest in it to like make sure that we are acknowledging our South Asian roots. 
and hopefully a lot of hiring that's going to happen too. So that's been top of mind for us, the company. Awesome. Lots of things happening. So yes, first of all, all the listeners should go and listen to the juggernaut interviews because uh, yes, that sounds so interesting because I believe success stories inspire us. Failure lessons probably give us those insights of learning, right? But you are talking between about the cusp, the work in progress uh, entrepreneurs. That will be very interesting to listen to. And I'm so looking forward to uh, deep diving in one of your episodes. So yeah, and excited also about the new design that you are talking about uh, for the South Asian community, especially. So any, any uh, experiments or any ideas you've come up with for that? So when we started the project, it was very, very important to me because South Asia itself has such a strong visual history. It's millennia old. And we actually have lots of uh, our scripts are also really old. And so, you know, the, what we are writing in. And so when we were when we were examining our design, I literally sent the design team a mood board with everything from shots of, you know, Satyajit Rai's films to shots of like Sanjulila Bansali's film to like Soho House Bombay to like, you know, um, design architecture stills from Bangladesh to, you know, you know, all the beautiful historic monuments across South Asia. And I sent them, I sent it all to them. I'm like, I don't know what you can do with all of this, but these are all my inspirations of what design looks like. And when we decided on our juggernaut font, we now have a juggernaut font. We basically looked at these old printing presses in South Asia that took English lettering, but made it very specific to South Asia. Like you don't see that lettering actually anywhere else. And sometimes you see some of those lettering in old, old Indian films or South Asian films in the very beginning. And so we brought some of that back. So those are some of the things that we were looking at in terms of our design. And even every single one of our fonts has been designed by a South Asian person. And that was very, very important. Awesome. I'm so excited to know this because, uh, you know, this was one conversation that recently came up uh, with one of my business buddies and we were just discussing as to how to bring about the experience of your brand uh, in your communication, in your uh, uh, user interface, in your look and feel. And we were just discussing that uh, these cafes, uh, which celebrities have started, uh, incidentally, we went to one of the cafes in Dubai, which was uh, Asha Bhosle's cafe. I don't remember the name of it, but it was uh, her cafe. So the food was regular uh, food and uh, the muffins and the coffee and everything was very regular. But the only the atmosphere which was created, which was all related to Asha Bhosle's songs and her photographs and everything. So it was a lot to do with the design. Uh, that created the connection and the feel of what we are trying to communicate. So rightly said that from the lettering to the fonts to the colors that you use, that is all which brings together and enhances the consumption of the stories that you are probably telling through your platform. That's awesome. That's awesome. Moving on to the uh, last bit, uh, Snigda. Uh, so, of course, you've had a great experience in fundraising and, uh, of course, you are having a conversation about fundraising with many entrepreneurs on your podcast as well. So uh, give us some tips on how to pitch and sell your idea to investor. So that can be like uh, uh, your advice on how entrepreneurs can go out there and raise funds for their startups. 
Yeah. So the first thing I will say is that the good news is for people who are interested in sales is that I think that it's really important when you're raising BC to treat it like a sales funnel. So I live in Excel during the fundraising process. I create a whole list of prospects. I grade them and figure out you know, who is going to be the most likely and who I might want to save. It's kind of interesting. I, it's like a barbell strategy. You do a couple that you're close with at the beginning because you know they'll be kinder to you and more likely to convert. But then you want to do a bunch of folks that you might necessarily not know or you know, be very preferenced about. But then you also want to save some of your really good ones that you'd be really excited about like in the middle, because you've had some practice with people where you might not care as much about. So you definitely create a huge list, you sequence it out, and it truly is a numbers game. And the other thing I think about that people don't think about enough is your energy levels. Because if you, so, you know, as we do the fundraising process, I'm constantly tracking how many people are a lead, how many people I've had one conversation with, how many people I've had two conversations with, how many people are likely to, you know, I also give them percentages. How many people are in a partnership meeting? How many people are no's? And then I keep on looking at my percentage conversion rate at each one. And I try to compare it with my other founders. And what I've noticed is that this is a sad part about VC, right? I've noticed that many of my female founders, we have to talk to 2X to 3X the number of VCs to get the same conversions at the end. Guess what? I, we've now made it a very solvable problem. It's a math problem now, which is, Unfortunately, VC is biased. We know this. You know, 2.9% of funding goes to female founders and 0.006% goes to women of color, which is insane. So we already know that it's messed up. So if you know that, how can you empower yourself um, and deal with the system? Hopefully, we'll still change the system and that will take a little bit longer, but also deal with it, which often means that my prospect list has to be like 3x the size of my male founder friends and uh, even my female founder friends who are not minorities. And so that is a very big difference in terms of how I fundraise. But the other thing I always will say is that when do you abort? You abort when, like, I'm usually, you know, the more no's you get, the easier it is. Most salesperson people will tell you this, right? So I, I think I have pretty thick skin by this point where I know I also have personas of what each VC is likely to say no on, right? Even before I go into the meeting, I know, oh, this VC is sensitive to TAM. This VC is a hype person. They're only going to like a hot company, even if the intrinsics are bad. This person is interested in subscription. Like know who the personas are and why they have the views that they have and the biases they have, because that's more information for you. Those are kind of my, you know, my big tricks. And then lastly, going back to the energy level, which I did not complete. Mostly I'm like, oh, okay, no, I brush it off. But if you consistently hear no, and you have a lot of volume together, sometimes that's really de-energizing. And whenever that happens, I usually take a break. So if that means, hey, tonight I'm going to order and take out and watch a Bollywood movie to make myself feel happy, go do that. It might even mean, you know what, I'm going to pause this entire process. Like that's a bigger decision that you should take with your, you know, with your investors. I need to pause this process and address all of this feedback before I go back in. And it's very iterative in terms of the sales cycle. And I think people forget that part. It feels when we read about it again, in hindsight, in the press or in PR, it feels like an all or nothing move, right? Because sometimes we hear about the best scenarios, which is, oh, I got preempted. A VC gave me a term sheet. And sometimes we hear about the uh, sanitized version, which is I just raised you know, $10 million and it was very easy. Um, we often don't hear the things happening in the background. And I often suggest go talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. The stories you hear are incredible. And these stories are never on Twitter. These stories are never in press releases because they're difficult stories, right? They're stories that founders don't want to easily share, but they will tell you and they will give you advice. And so to sum up, one, treat it as a sales process. 
be very organized, have an Excel, make a list, really know who you're going after. Um, the YC advice is to treat, actually do two phases where you first have coffees with everyone to get to know people, and then you actually pitch. Um, some people are against this methodology. I say use the methodology that's authentic to you. For me, like there are some people I want to have coffee with, and I did. And then there's some people I frankly do not care about having coffee with. And so those people, I'm just going to go pitch. So like, you know, like, and it's fine. Like figure out what's authentic to you. So the first one, treat it like a sales process. Make sure you know what you're doing. Second is treat it like a numbers game, which is do the math and do the data that you need for your sector too. It could be because of who you are as a person. It could be because of the sector you're in. It could be what geography you're in to understand conversion rates in that sector, that industry, that geo, so that you're prepared for what you should expect versus reality. It's always about expectations versus reality. I still remember um, after YC Demo Day, you get likes and people, uh, you know, people express interest and you're supposed to follow up with them. So I was talking to my partner at the time, Jared. I was like, Jared, I've emailed all of these people and my conversion rate is like 11%. He's like, Stina, that's strange. Your conversion rate should be like 20 to 30%. Can you try emailing them all a second time? And once I had those numbers, I was suddenly empowered. So I emailed all of the people a second and third time. And then I got my conversion rate up to 50% for a meeting. But I didn't know that, right? I didn't know what the reality was. If I, if I thought 11% was normal, I was just operating as if it was normal. Once I got new information from my partner that he had seen that conversion rates to a first meeting was 20% from an email, I changed my behavior. So remember, you know, treat it like a numbers game. That's very, very important. Otherwise, it's going to get to you. <laughs> and then the third, third process, a third tip is make sure you're creating space for creating energy for yourself, which is if you feel de-energized, make sure you're taking those opportunities on those beats to replenish. Because if you're not energized, nobody else will be energized about your business. So awesome. That's what, first of all, I love the fact that you talked about raising funds in a sales process language. Like I love the fact that having a sales pipeline is non-negotiable for any business owner. If you want to be great at selling, you have to work around with the sales pipeline, know your numbers and work on your conversion rates. Because just the fact that you went back to look at your numbers and your partner helped you see the what the numbers are saying to you you were able to tweak your strategy send a second email and get that going so yeah thank you so much for pointing that out that people y'all please work on your sales pipeline most of the entrepreneurs just sit back thinking that i have a great product or a solution and everything one should line up uh, in front of the door to buy it that does not happen you have to work on your pipeline that's so awesome thank you so much for bringing that onto the table this was a great conversation snikla and there was such useful insights on sales and business growth and fundraising thank you so much roshni thanks so much for having me and i hope this is valuable to people and you know they learned a couple of things and took some stuff away now wasn't that amazing to get such insightful business lessons from a young entrepreneur like Snikta? I mean, I get goosebumps when I see such young talent get into the entrepreneurial space early in life. Looking at women in business right from Snikta, who is probably in her 20s, to Palgiri Nair, who created history by becoming an entrepreneur in 40s and launching IPO in 50s, my belief in entrepreneurship as a great tool for women to unleash the highest potential gets reinforced every single time. Well, I have the same belief in you as well. So keep rising in sales, keep shining in your business and keep listening to Ace the Sales Podcast. And for that, join me in the next episode 
Till then, this is your host, Roshni Paronia, signing off.